So game one of the 1954 World Series was tied two to two after seven innings. But in the top of the eighth, heavily favored Cleveland got two runners on with no outs. And Vic Wirtz stepped up to the plate and hit a long drive toward the wall in right center field. In Ken Burns' documentary, Baseball, Bob Costas described the calculations that ran through baseball fans' minds at that moment. He said, will the ball land in the gap? Will it be an inside the park home run? How strong is the fielder's arm? How fast is Wirtz on the base paths? How daring is the third base coach? In those fleeting seconds, you take in all the information and make your calculations in order to determine what are the possibilities. What actually happened, said Costas, was simply outside the realm of possibilities. What happened is that the center fielder managed to catch the ball over his shoulder running full stride spin and throw a strike to the cutoff man and turn a double play. With that catch and throw, Willie Mays required everyone to recalculate what was possible. The realm of possibilities expanded when he took the field. Now, moving from the polo grounds to the scriptures, we might ask ourselves the same question. What is within the realm of possibilities? So we have been examining Genesis since early October. As you recall, it opens with this grand description of a God who merely speaks and things spring to life, spring into being. God creating these bridge creatures, beings of mud and divine breath whom God calls to rule over this creation as God would. These, the story then goes off the rails when these bridge creatures lose trust in this God of all this abundance and goodness and in, in a, an attempted coup, eat forbidden fruit. Now, one of the things that God says when God lays out the consequences of this action God just says that there's going to be this ongoing battle from here on out, well, at least for a while, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Humanity versus the powers of chaos, life versus death. Now, God doesn't say it there, but God refuses to be just an observer of this battle. God sides with humanity with life. God is more devoted to the cause of humanity than humanity itself is devoted to it. Humanity seems at times far too eager to join the ranks of team chaos. Every time you look, they're wearing chaos's jersey. Well, last week, as you recall, this whole issue of the seed of the woman really comes front and center. Because God's plan to bring wholeness, to bring life to this world of chaos and death, focuses on this old man and his old wife. 
living in Haran. God says, hey, you, yes, you, I'm going to bring about a victory for wholeness and life through you and through your descendants. And the old man buys it. He packs up everything and heads out to wherever it is this God wants him to go. How does he do it? What gives him the ability to upend his life like that? Faith. However, last week I tried to emphasize that we don't need to confuse faith with magic. Like, faith does not just simply override who we are, override all our calculations of what's possible. It takes who we are and directs it Godward. Abram and Sarah, Sarai were an elderly couple without children. Couples with infertility issues, as you may know personally or through your own experience or the experience of others, they can be willing to go to rather extreme measures to have that uh, desire fulfilled, the desire to conceive. So when some God says, hey, follow me, I'm going to, you know, let's, you're going to up and move and we're going to have, you're going to have some, some uh, offspring. That seems good enough for them. And in that sense, God, their desire for a child, God takes that and directs it Godward. And that is faith. Anyway, now we've skipped, as I said, we've skipped a couple of chapters. Uh, they do up and move and there are bumps in the road. Uh, by and large, they, they're doing well, right? Hey, like I said, Abram's uh, clan is a force to be reckoned with. He's able to put together an army and rescue uh, his nephew from the kings of Sodom. Or not kings of Sodom. Uh, uh, yeah, kings of Sodom. Uh, in, so in our chapter, now God is just sort of checking in after this little bit of adventure and offering some reassurances, reminding Abram of this larger plan. Abram hears this, looks around his tent, and like a baseball fan, makes some calculations. Sees his wife sleeping beside him, no more pregnant today than she was half a century ago. Ago, She's just older. Uh, he's determining with what's within the realm of possibilities given the customs of the day. And he says, Lord, what, what can you give me since... I am childless, and Eliezer of Damascus is my, hair, is my heir. And then as, as if he's not sure that God gets it, he goes on and says, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Belonging at the heart of his faith is still just that, a longing, a void. Abram is a wealthy, powerful man, but he must wonder whether he's being played for a fool. To paraphrase a line from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the battle between trust in God and distrust of God is not one that divides people. It divides every human heart. That's a battle in every human heart. And what Abram is voicing here is not necessarily just distrust, but a desire 
to, for God to give him reason to trust. Because when he looks around the tent, he has no reason to trust. And God does not take offense at this. God recognizes the battle that's going on in Abram, and God is not threatened by it. However, God does not magically fix it in that moment, right? God doesn't just drop a baby out of the sky and place Willie Mays outside the tent to catch it and make a perfect throw to Abram, though God could do that, and Willie Mays could do that. No, God's response is to insist that Abram keep battling. Nope, it's not Eliezer. That's not who I'm talking about. You have to trust that this promise is going to be fulfilled by an heir that you yourself produce. Now, the text does not say how Abram himself responds to that. However, it's hard to see how that how what God says there would be immediately encouraging. After all, not only can Abram not see an heir in the tent, he sees himself, he sees his wife, he can see their age, he can, he can feel that in his bones. With every passing day, this promise seems less and less likely. So, God does not leave it at that. God said, God says, Let's step outside for a second. God needs Abram to recalculate. And he can't do that inside the tent. It's too confining, too cramped, it's too limited. He needs to see the realm of possibilities without boundaries. A realm of possibilities as vast as the sky in the middle of nowhere on a moonless night. So Abram steps outside, looks up, takes in all those billions and billions of stars. Okay, says God, start counting. Tell me what's possible, Abram. Do you remember that film, Castaway? Tom Hanks uh, plays Chuck. Chuck is an efficiency expert for Federal Express. And circumstances require that he board a cargo plane to ensure a particular delivery's arrival. However, the plane encounters rough weather and crashes. He's the only, and Chuck is the only survivor. Manages to wash ashore a small island. And among the things that he's able to salvage from the, the plane is a Wilson volleyball uh, that he names Spalding. No, I'm just kidding. He names it Wilson. So it's just Chuck and Wilson. And there's a moment in the movie where it's pouring rain outside and uh, Chuck is in a cave talking to Wilson. With a, he's got a rock in his hand and he starts making calculations. He wants to figure out just how big a search area uh, they're going to have is they, they'll have to look for him within. And so he takes his flight speed, he writes that down, okay, figures out how much time they were in the air, he estimates how off course they might have been from, from the, the flight pattern that they're supposed to be on because of the storm, and he multiplies this by this, and divides by pi, and blah, blah, blah. And finally, he turns and looks at Wilson and said, let's see, that's, he draws a circle, and he says, that's a search area of 500 
thousand miles. That's twice the size of Texas, he says. They may never find us. Now, I don't know what skills you would bring to a deserted island. Uh, I would bring almost none. I would be doomed. I would make a nice, well-edited video of myself <laughs> describing just how doomed I was. There's my skills being put to use. Uh, but the Tom Hanks character brings his skills as an efficiency expert, his ability to calculate, uh, to not just find food, but to start fire. I make fire, remember that scene, right? And to build a shelter, he creates all these little systems and he keeps it organized. He's, uh, to develop a plan for getting to the mainland again. He's able to consider all the variables and factor them in. Now, if you ever are able to see that film again, I suggest you pay attention to something. At no point in the film, during any of the scenes at night, does the camera ever go like this? At no point do we ever see Tom Hanks looking upward into what must have been an amazing sky out there on that deserted island. There's a couple times where you can see it in the background. Well, why not? Why not have that scene? Because it would have totally changed the tone of the movie, right? Because this is a movie about a man who makes calculations, who knows the realm of possibilities and has, and has a plan. If suddenly, once you turn that camera upward, suddenly that movie is not just about making calculations, it's, about, it's a prayer. It's not just about Chuck, the efficiency expert, Wilson, the volleyball. Uh, it's now about Chuck, the efficiency expert, Chuck, the volleyball, and God. Because suddenly, the, you know, staring into the depth of infinite space invites us to recalculate what's in the realm of possibility. But God of all this is in our midst. What is possible? Well, the book of Genesis is different than uh, the film Castaway. First of all, it doesn't star Tom Hanks. Second of all, Genesis likes to take the camera and tilt it upward to see the stars and to start counting until we can't count anymore. We're told that after stepping out of the tent and standing underneath all those stars, Abram believed. And this is where we find our hope for our, where he finds the bat, hope for his battle, and it's where we find hope for our battle. Not within ourselves, not within the tent, not within our own little calculations of what is possible. We don't ignore all that. God doesn't ask us to pretend none of that's true, but we do need to get outside the tent. We need to find ways to step outside and look up. Maybe we need to do that literally. Maybe we do need, part of the, our battle involves just taking in the stars. Maybe taking in a sunset and realizing there's more, po there's more possible here than I can calculate. The fact is part of what we do in worship is that. Worship is an invitation to step outside of the tent of our lives, to step away from the demands and preoccupations of daily life and remember 
This is not all about us and what we are capable of. Because that is a losing battle. Left to ourselves, our best option is simply to find ways to distract ourselves from those deepest longings. Left to ourselves, the best option is just to go numb to all that. But in worship, we remember to direct those longings God toward God and to recognize that God determines what is possible. We remember that what's possible is not merely a, a sky full of a billion stars or a sunset that sets clouds ablaze. What's possible is resurrection. God in a fight to the death on behalf of humanity, for humanity, in order to bring wholeness and life. What's possible is mercy for all the stupid things we do on behalf of team chaos. What's possible is hope because the God of heaven and earth is not merely an observer in this battle. God has picked a side, yours. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.